The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Amy, that's Lisa, and we're just two girls that want to have a conversation with you. Dear 16-year-old Andrea. Hey, gorgeous. Dear younger Lauren. Each episode is stories from people. I would deprive myself, weigh myself obsessively. Because I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a problem with food. Losing my period scared me the most. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body. Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self. Healthy behaviors play a much bigger role in our health than the actual number on the scales. Internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. When you start to share your story, that gives other people the courage to share theirs. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to yourself. I felt freedom. I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth. There's one thing I need you to take away from this. You're going to be okay. All right, it's the day after Christmas, and uh, for some people, you might be waking up to a cozy cup of coffee, hanging out with your family, but for some people, the reality is you might be waking up alone because Christmas looks a lot different this year, and maybe you had to self-quarantine, or you weren't able to travel, or you weren't able to be with your family. And I want to recognize, too, that we keep talking about how 2020 is different, but also there's the reality that some years 
holidays are just never awesome for some people, depending on their family circumstances or their family dynamic. So that's not lost on us either. It's just sometimes we speak to what we're in. And 2020 has been weird because maybe normally, yeah, you would be with family, but you're not today. Or, Or again, maybe you are. But our hope is that wherever you are, that this holiday season, and it will continue because we got new year around the corner, around the horizon, different things going on. There might be leftovers from yesterday in the fridge, pie calling your name, whatever. And I hope that this year for you looks so different because for me, I think of Christmas pasts where I would have eaten everything that was prepared by all the amazing people in my family that can cook so well. And then the day after I was like at the gym, juicing, doing all the things Mm -hmm. to undo the damage I had done. So I just hope that you've joined us in Outweigh the last several months and maybe you've learned some stuff and you've been given the tools to give yourself that permission to no matter what you ate yesterday on Christmas Day and no matter how you're waking up today, you can eat breakfast however much you want, whatever you want. You don't have to go to the gym. You can go get the pie out. It doesn't matter. I mean, Lisa, you might be able to speak to this more because I thank Lisa a lot for my growth in this area. There was several different things that contributed to me finding this peace that I now have with food. But Lisa is a huge reason for that. Thank you. And I mean, I've I've been there too. So I'm not just speaking as, you know, the, the expert. I'm speaking right now from the person that also has been there, whether it was Thanksgiving or even just, you know, a Sunday night or whatever it was when we put these days on pedestals for whatever reasons, that the shift really happens when you recognize the noise. You know, I call my courses Fork the Noise, but you don't need to take my courses to understand the concept. The concept is when you are caught up in either inner noise, which can be worry, guilt, shame, feeling like you need to compensate, you can notice what that feels like in your body and recognize you're not your best self right now. And in order to be your best self, you need to calm down and give your body what it needs. And as long as we continue to, you know, do the juice cleanses or, you know, make up for a Christmas day, the more we stay stuck in this this really bad cycle that isn't the true us. So again, you know, we've done so much this year on Outway and thank you for everybody who made Outway possible. So feel free to also just revisit any episodes because these shifts in our mindset and our behavior take time. So re-listen to whatever feels good for you. And we kind of picked out some of the best ofs of this year to try and help you kind of get there today or whatever day you're listening to this if it's not the day after Christmas. And we've had so many experts and guests just hopefully just reminding you that you're not alone, your body's not broken, but it is definitely time to change the way we think so that we can really live our fullest lives. I love that. I want to share a small joy from my recovery. And then Lisa, while I'm sharing it, you can be thinking of one because we didn't discuss this before. But a small joy for me was that I got to make a brownie recipe that Mary and I included in our Four Things Gratitude Journal. It's It's a journal that you write down what you're thankful for, but we both included family recipes inside. And mine was a macaroni and cheese dish, and then hers was this amazing brownie dish from her grandma and nothing was gluten-free. It was like all these food rules I used to have around, okay, if I'm going to have a brownie, it needs to be X, Y, Z for me to eat it. And it was all kinds of ingredients I would have never allowed myself. And I whipped it up, made it with my daughter, which was super fun. And she thought they were so tasty. 
And then earlier this week, I ate a brownie for breakfast. And I even just felt like that was a small joy for me. I made a cup of coffee. I sat down to work on my puzzle. I ate the brownie. And that to me was a moment that I don't think I would have had. And it was just me by myself, like (laughs) nothing around. But I thought, okay, diet culture says no to this all day long. And that's how we learn stuff like that. Society tells us, you're going to eat that brownie and you're going to eat it for breakfast and you're going to like insert whatever. And so for me, that was a small joy in my recovery. And just pay even that noise, you know, okay, you're going to eat that brownie. You're going to eat, you know, it for breakfast and oh, look at you. You're still going, you know, all those noises are clues that you're entering disconnection and you're going to then, you know, partake in the last chance mentality where, okay, well, I might as well keep eating all of the brownie. So, And what a beautiful moment that you had with yourself, Amy. Like those are the seeds of planting a really radically different relationship to yourself than the one that, you know, we've been taught to kind of have. Okay. My joys have been not so much in the actual foods that I'm eating because I feel like I've gotten some good, you know, freedoms around that. But one of the things that really like lights my heart on fire and makes me feel really proud of me and so grateful that I did this work or I do this work every day is really like my husband has been working crazy hours and I normally really try and wait for him for dinner. But lately it's just been too much to wait for him. I can't eat at 1030 at night, multiple times a night. So I've been eating my dinner alone, which can be a little bit lonely. And then when he comes home, um, you know, I could have I have different options there. I could just put food in front of him. I could have it waiting for him and be in bed. But I've actually been partaking and also eating with him simply because sometimes sharing sharing a meal for me is just a really powerful way to stay connected. And even if I'm not, you know, hungry or in the mood for that food or any of that, having a few bites and just sharing those moments together, they make such a big difference in our relationship. And I value that relationship so much. And I recognize that that's not something that I would have ever, you know, done five, six, seven years ago. Yes. Being able to put, I feel like I can speak for you here on this, Lisa, but for a lot of years, both of us probably spent a lot of time and energy putting food and working out above relationships. For sure. And then even (laughs) if I were to eat with him, you know, it wouldn't be because I wanted to spend time with him. It would be because like this whole other mindset in my mind was really dragging me away from the moment. So I might be eating with him, but I'm thinking about, you know, what I have to do because I ate this food. And it's nice that food can just be a vehicle to connect, period. It just is so different. Yeah, and your brain is there with him and not five different places on how you're going to. And I know months ago, or this may even have been last year, well, probably was last year because 2020 has been weird, but you were talking about, or maybe you were just sharing an experience from early on in your recovery, like you were at a bachelorette party or traveling with girlfriends and normally you would have not been able to order things off room service and you would have Uh woken up first thing and went to the gym, but you were able to just order whatever with your girlfriends, have a good night at the hotel and then not wake up and rush off to the gym. Totally. Which is, again, about relationships, and I've been there. It makes me think, too, before we get into this best of episode, Jennifer Rollin is someone that we both admire a lot and follow on Instagram, and she actually posted the other day a small joy of her recovery, and she said, choosing to sleep in with your partner instead of feeling like you have to rush off to the gym. I think that applies even if you don't have a partner. Like, Amy, your moment today eating your brownie, like, the fact that it was alone is so much bigger than I think we even realize, because... Because having these intimate moments with ourselves are really important. 
So choosing to lay in bed with yourself on the day after Christmas if you're not working, because that just feels good to just like, you know, kind of self-cherish for lack of a better word. I don't know if that's kind of the word I want to go for. Is just a beautiful moment, like to hold yourself and not rush off into this defined version of health. Like health is calmness. It's inner peace. Those are the mindsets that change your chemistry to actually support things like your cardiac health and inflammation more than the food or the exercise itself, if that makes sense. Does that no. make sense, Amy? Absolutely. Our hope is that you guys close out the end of this year a little bit more self-aware of where you are with food and, and body image stuff. And then give yourself grace. This kind of thing does not happen overnight. Lisa and I have both put in a lot of work. And so I don't want you to beat yourself up if you hear us telling a story and you're not quite there yet because everybody's journey is different and how you get there may be different. We just want Outweigh to be a tool that you have in your toolbox to help you get there. So we hope you enjoy today's best of episode and then we will see you in 2021. Woohoo! Woohoo! We are so excited to welcome Jennifer Rollin. She is an eating disorder therapist and founder of the Eating Disorder Center in Maryland. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on, especially since you can talk with us about eating disorder issues and topics and you're a therapist, you're the expert. And the first thing we'd love to touch on with you is orthorexia. Because I think for a long time, this didn't have a name. I know I personally had it, but I didn't realize that's what I was doing. And to myself and to my family and friends that I was hanging out with. Can you talk to us about what it is? Yeah. And I think it's so common for people to not know that they have it. And basically, orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with so-called healthy eating. So what it can look like, just some of the main symptoms would be rigid food rules. So saying things like, I don't eat white bread, cutting out whole food groups for non-medical reasons. We also see social isolation. So starting to avoid events where the person can't get their like quote unquote healthy food, spending hours thinking about food, Googling recipes, and then this idea of purity and morality. So if I eat a certain way, then I'm a good person. But if I eat a different way, then I'm bad. Yes. And I, as someone who also experienced a version of orthorexia, you know, it didn't start like that. How does it start for most people in your practice or your experience? Sure. So I'm also recovered myself and I first experienced orthorexic symptoms when my eating disorder emerged. And I see this with clients as well. How it usually starts is this idea of I want to be healthier. That's how it presents to the outside world. So typically people with orthorexia, unlike anorexia, they're usually very open about what they're eating, kind of posting the Instagram images of beautiful, like healthified foods, promoting this idea of health and wellness. But underneath that is an obsession and high levels of anxiety, as well as like this need for control. So I just want to be clear too, because there is a difference in wanting to put nourishing foods into your body and caring about that, but then being obsessive about it. I mean, how do, how do you tell the difference? Like if someone's listening right now, they're like, oh, shoot, I do care about like nutrients and food. And my outer wisdom is telling me like this food is something that's going to provide a lot of healthy vitamins and minerals for my body and what it needs. But there's a difference. That's not what we're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. So it comes down to this idea of preference versus a rigid rule. So what I always say is there's nothing wrong with really liking kale, right? That's not unhealthy. But for somebody with orthorexia, it's this idea of 
I cannot break my food rules. And if I do, there's extreme anxiety. So it's a difference between I have a preference for eating this food, this I know it's going to give me nutrients. I've decided to have this meal because it looks good versus I'm eating this meal because these are my safe foods and anything else is bad. And if I eat anything else, you know, I'm going to feel terrible about myself or have to compensate or think about it all day. Anecdotally for myself, you know, it started off of I love healthy food. I love healthy food. But it was also really just a vice to control my food in a new way, in a way where other people wouldn't question it that, you know, I was eating, but I was eating specific foods. So nobody would ever say, okay, she has an eating disorder. She doesn't eat. If anything, everybody would say she eats a lot because I was always eating, but always eating safe foods personally for me. Yeah. And that's so typical. And we might see things and something I did in my eating disorder, for instance, was I would bring my own food to cookouts in like a Tupperware and I'd be eating and it would appear quote unquote healthy, but it wasn't enough calories for my energy needs. And it was very rigid. Yeah, I would say I could speak speak to that too. For my family, my dad, food is his love language and he would love to cook for us. And I think back on all the times where I used to just show up and not eat what he prepared because it wasn't on my list. And, And I could get away with it because I was like, well, dad, I'm a vegan, gluten-free, you know, person now, (laughs) but I don't even really know why I put myself into that category. I think some of it did start because I, I was trying to get pregnant and I read a book that was all about detoxing and how you, what certain foods you could put into your body. But for me, it took it to the next level. But I had that as my excuse of, well, I'm eating this way because I'm trying to get pregnant. But I really, I liked the results I was seeing from it and it snowballed and snowballed to where I was no longer a... We began to fear the things that you cut out. Exactly. So you couldn't be flexible. And then if I let myself have whatever said food that I feared, then it was like, okay, I've gone and done this. So I better eat this food that is on my fear list for the rest of today and as much as I can, Mm -hmm. because tomorrow I'm never going to have it again. Yeah. And that's so common that like binge compulsive eating restrict cycle. It's incredibly common. And I think one thing you both pointed out was also how this eating disorder, I like to call it like the eating disorder that hides in plain sight, because it's often not visible to the outside eye. People think, oh, that person's just being healthy. And there's a lot of justifications, like you said, saying you're gluten-free, saying you're dairy-free, but secretly it's that obsession and that desire for control. And not to mention the applaud that comes with oh, I wish I could be healthy like you or I could have the discipline like you where you're being applauded for this behavior that becomes your identity. Yes, I'm going to touch on that because you say your identity. Somehow I became this person without even really trying to be that person that people would come to for advice on what is the next thing I should be doing or how can I detox like ASAP? And I was like, how did I become this person? But I realized I became that person because it's all I talked about. (laughs) which I I probably would now find myself to be extremely annoying if I mean but it's it is something that a lot of people are interested in and they're always trying to find that next thing so if you're a person that's up to speed on the next superfood then you know of course it's what you're going to be talking about and people are going to ask you about and to me there was nothing satisfying about being that person. I think at the time I thought maybe there was, but looking back, I'm like, oh, that was just so miserable to be fixated on certain foods that were going to have all these magical powers because they were on my my list of approved 
things I could eat. And then it's so hard for people to let go of that identity too, for some people, because they do get so much praise from other people and it becomes part of who they are. And they're like, without this, who am I? The thing about orthorexia was that this was not a word that was well known. Um, I think it was officially created or termed, coined in the 90s, but we didn't hear about it until really now. And it's one of those words that I wish I knew about or I learned about in school because without it existing, I thought I was fine. I thought that, okay, I didn't have anorexia or bulimia personally, so therefore I was fine. And with the understanding that there's this gray area, which is disordered eating, which orthorexia falls under, I felt like I could have raised my hand and say, okay, I see that symptom in me. But without it being there, without a place to land, I, I suffered for many years. Yeah, which is so tough and unfortunately so common. Again, it's just hard, I think, to identify that you have a problem when everyone around you is envious of what you're doing and maybe you're surrounding yourself by other people in diet culture, so it seems very normative. Jennifer, can you share with us the difference between eating disorder and disordered eating? Sure. So for me, the way that I define disordered eating is that you don't have a good relationship with food. Maybe you're following like these external diet rules, you're not listening to your body, you're casting judgment around certain foods as good or bad, perhaps you're not eating enough for your energy needs. And all of that can be really harmful. And I think people who struggle with disordered eating deserve to get care as much as people with eating disorders. For me, it crosses over into an eating disorder when that becomes your whole life. There's a big distinction between dieting where like that's one piece of your life and maybe it's an unpleasant piece of your life but it's a piece of your life. When it's an eating disorder, it starts to infiltrate every area of your life. And for many people at the height of their eating disorder, it's like every waking thought is about food or when can I get my next meal or when can I use this behavior? Maybe there's a mom that's listening or a family member or a best friend that's listening to this right now and they don't necessarily struggle with some of this, but someone close to them does. What advice do you have for people in their life? Like for me, I'm thinking of like, if I had a friend listening to this back when I was really like hyper-focused, like on every little thing that I was eating, say my best friend or my sister would be listening to us talk right now. And she might be like, oh my gosh, this is Amy. Like Amy needs to hear this. Like how, how can I help Amy? This is her. What is the best way to do it without you know, offending somebody or trying to make sure that you're there for them, you're giving them the best help. Like what, what does that person need? What did I need from someone when I was during that time? Yeah. So I think there's a few things. I think the first step is to express your concerns to that person and to make sure that you're pointing out the concerns about their behaviors and not about weight, because talking about the person's weight can be really triggering. And then we also know that People can have an eating disorder in any size body. So they don't have to be stick thin in order to struggle. So saying, I love you, I care about you, I've noticed that when we go out to eat, you're ordering in a very disordered way or you're not wanting to go out to eat with me as much as you used to or you're constantly talking about superfoods. You know, and I wonder, you know, because I am so worried about you, would you be open to getting consultation with the therapist? And then if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. But I would really urge you to get some professional help just to, again, see if there's something going on to kind of get an assessment. And I would also add to be really careful not to make comments on that person's body and to also educate yourself and to educate the person as much as possible. So, you know, maybe sharing with them the link to our conversation or 
other books or podcasts talking about eating disorder behaviors as well. One of the hardest parts for me was when I noticed that my thoughts were all consuming and I went to see a therapist who was not an eating disorder therapist. She told me that I had anxiety and that made so much sense to me because of course I had anxiety, but because all I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a a problem with food. And I almost wish that that therapist had said to me, you have anxiety because of your relationship to food, not you have anxiety, period. Because we danced around it. I danced around it for a long time. And I was looking for professional help for someone to tell me something was wrong. And she didn't. Yeah. And I think that's why like another caveat of that would be to ask when they do seek professional help, that they seek help from an eating disorder specialist, not just somebody, because I don't know if you guys are familiar with psychology today to find a therapist, but nowadays therapists can check a box and say they specialize in something on psychology today. So some have like 30 specialties listed and you want to actually, like I encourage people to interview the therapist on the phone and say, what percentage of your caseload is people with eating disorders? Like, what is your experience to really get an understanding? Because unfortunately, a lot of therapists say they do everything. And I'm somebody who doesn't believe that you can effectively have every specialization. You know, like I know what areas I'm great at and I know what I don't know. Would you say that orthorexia or disordered eating always comes down to the desire to be thin? Definitely. I don't think so. I think with orthorexia, you can have people who want to lose weight as part of that illness, but you also can have people who don't have body image issues where, for instance, I've had clients in the past who've lost family members to cancer. And so their fear around food is that, you know, this idea of mortality. And if I eat in a certain way, then they believe I can protect myself from that, right? So I think even though thinness can be the way that some of the symptoms sometimes manifest with an eating disorder, usually there's a lot of underlying core issues, which can include past trauma, low self-worth, perfectionism, you know, anxiety, depression, a mood disorder. So the way I describe it to clients is if we think about an iceberg, often the desire to be thin is the top of the iceberg that's peeking out. But underneath the surface is all of those other issues that I was just talking about that play into that. And how do you ration, though, with somebody that says my blah, 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 died of cancer, and so I need to eat all these superfoods only, and I can't have gluten, and I can't have this, and I can't have that, because those are all, you know, because they read that they're inflammatory. I'm not saying these as factual information for our listeners, just things that I hear a lot as a dietitian. Right. And I think, I mean, I have so many arguments around that. I don't even know where to start, but I think the main two that I would say are, A, like really looking at the conclusive research And B, I mean, we know a lot of research is tainted or like facts on certain websites by diet culture. So looking at the impact of having anxiety around food on your health, because that spikes cortisol and can actually be very unhealthy. And then two, Harvard did a study um, for 100 years where they studied men and they looked at mortality rates. And they found that people with the strongest social connections actually was the biggest predictor of longevity. And people who are obsessed with quote-unquote health foods, often that impacts their social relationships because in our culture, right, like we all want to go out and get ice cream with friends. So I would actually argue that isolating and sitting alone in your room, eating your salad is far more unhealthy than going out to eat in a relaxed environment with friends. You know, we have real people sharing their stories as part of this series and also in that doing letters to themselves. And I think that a lot of people 
with this in their past, if they are writing back to the person they were then, so many letters would include like, I'm sorry that you missed out on going to dinner with your friends. I'm sorry that you would make up an excuse to skip the party because you were scared of what food was going to be served or if there was going to be cake. I know that that's certainly the case for me. Like I think back over the years of college to adulthood, like past that into my career where I legit skipped out on social functions because I couldn't control the food. And even if I was personally showing up to them mentally, I was checked out because let's say I ate before I got there to control the situation. I was, my mind was still running rampant around, oh my God, I want to eat this. Can I eat this? Can I eat this? And then I'd eat it. And then I'd go into the guilt cycle. So it's like, you're just can't be present even if you're showing up. Mm-hmm. I, I love that you touched on that, Jennifer, the, the study of the social aspect and how that can be so good for us. And probably the anxiety that I cause around, I mean, I'm that person with the cancer thing too. Yes, I had the healthy eating because I was trying to get pregnant, but my mom also died of cancer in 2014. My dad is in remission right now. So I feel like I also had that to latch on to, to use as an excuse of why I was eating a certain way. But again, it created so much anxiety and stress for me that stress caused more damage than, than the food. Right. And I think that's so common. And it, again, eating disorders and disordered eating are super complex. I don't want to say it boils down to one thing, but when we have the loss of a loved one, you know, from an illness, that feels incredibly out of control and uncertain and scary. And so if I'm sold this idea and this lie through diet culture that these foods will protect me, it makes perfect sense why I would latch onto that as a means of control. But again, we know it just serves to create more problems and that, you know, no matter how much kale we all eat, we're all going to, at the end of the day, we're all not going to live forever. So I think diet culture really preys on all of our fears about mortality and again, latching onto something to try to control after going through situations that feel very scary and out of control. But the problem is the more we buy into the behaviors, the more we're controlled by them. Yeah. And diet culture latches onto this, whatever we've been told is what our bodies are supposed to look like. Any generationally it changes, but there's like, okay, we're told from magazine covers to all kinds of things to celebrities, they feel this certain pressure to look a certain way. And then that's what we see. And I feel like then we're all struggling and it's like a rat race trying to, what can we do and trying to keep up and figure out how, how is our body supposed to look like that? Or how do we get our body that way? But why has that been decided? Like who decided that's how bodies look? Our bodies <laughs> should look how we were born to look and we're all different shapes and sizes. And we're all beautiful. Like that's just so, I'm sure it's frustrating for you of people that come in and are talking to you about, is that a topic that comes up of like the standards that we have to live up to and what's out there and, and what's your response to that? It comes up all the time with clients. And I think it's far worse now because of Instagram and Facetune and all these options that are out there. But I think at the end of the day, we all want to be loved and we all want to be accepted. And I think that diet culture is, I think now it's at the $70 billion industry and they wouldn't make any money if we all woke up and said, I, I like myself, I love myself, right? So we have these big companies that prey on our insecurities in order to sell products because that's how they make their money. And then I also think there's a big element of patriarchy in all of this, because if women are sitting around counting calories, trying to shrink our bodies, then we're not 
enacting world change that we could be enacting. Like, I feel like that could be an entirely separate episode. <laughs> so I don't even want to yeah. dive into that too far. Well, so you mentioned waking up and loving your body. Let's talk about self-talk and negative self-talk in particular. And I feel, we'll just use, since you brought up social media and Instagram, like it gets hard. Like you can be scrolling through and like see a picture of someone and then just be like, oh, wow, dang, look at them. Like, why am I so fat? Or however you, whatever that negative thought is that instantly comes in because you saw something or you walk by and you look in the mirror and you just instantly say something negative about yourself. How are you seeing how we talk to ourselves affect people? I mean, I think our internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. And so I start by having people be mindful of their thoughts because I think we go about our day and we have something like 70,000 thoughts a day. And many of them are similar thoughts that we've had before that are on loop. And so I think the first step is just being mindful and aware of what we're telling ourselves and that we're not our thoughts, right? Those are stories that our mind makes up. And then the second step is thinking rather than asking yourself, is that thought true or not? I have clients ask, is this thought helpful in terms of getting me in the direction of a full and meaningful life? And if the answer is it's not helpful, what I like to have people do is practice either coming up with a mantra, a positive self-statement that they say back to themselves repeatedly, or really practicing that like self-compassionate voice. So thinking about what you would tell a child, your best friend, somebody that you loved who said that statement. And the more you practice the positive self-talk, the more automatic and natural it can become over time. Thank you for that. Jennifer, we really appreciate you coming on. Actually, the next couple of stories that we're going to share in this episode are girls that got vulnerable and negative self-talk plays a role in, in their story. So I think we'll dive into their stories, but appreciate you coming on so much. And if people want to follow you on Instagram, you are at Jennifer underscore Rollin. And I have started following you, I don't know, in the last month or two. And I just want to tell you, I've so enjoyed your posts. They've been a huge encouragement to me. And I know that they will be to a lot of other people if they aren't already following you. And I'm just pulling up one that you put up. Actually, it's like three days ago when we're recording this, but this is going to air in April. But you put, your mom had slim fast. You have keto. Your daughter deserves freedom. Ditch the diet life. And as a mom of a 12-year-old girl who all I want her to know is that she is beautiful no matter what, like, yes, I want her to have that freedom. And thankfully, she is showing no signs of anything, but I just have to pray that that continues. But I liked that post because, yeah, every generation is going to have their thing. But I think if we continue this fight and you keep doing what you're doing, Jennifer, because it's important work our daughters can have freedom. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for spotlighting this issue because I think it's so important. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got Catherine DeFada in the studio with us. So you're a guest that's actually here in person. A lot of our interviews have been over the phone just because of where people are in the country, but you're right here in Nashville with us, which is super cool. And you're a therapist here in town, but you specialize in eating disorders. I do. And so I talked about it on the podcast and you listened to Four Things with Amy Brown and you sent me a note and said that if you could be a part of it, just letting you know. And we started emailing back and forth. And I was like, yes, can you come into the studio and 
and let's record some stuff. So uh, just before we hit record, we were having an off-air conversation about eating disorders being an addiction. And when I'm trying to talk to my husband about it or when I was eating a lot and I just felt like I couldn't stop and he didn't understand, I would say, and I don't know if I was right in how I was saying it at all, but to me it felt like, I was like, I don't know. It's like an alcoholic can't stop drinking. I was like, but you can take alcohol out of your life and survive. Like with food, I can't eliminate food from my life because you need food to survive. I just remember that being like some language I would throw out. I'm sure I heard it somewhere. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's comparing alcoholism is seen as, as an addiction. Yeah. So one of the things that you asked me was, what's the difference between self-work and therapy with an actual therapist? And I thought about it and I actually like had a different answer. And then I was like, that's not right. The difference is the relationship. And the relationship between a therapist and a client is like the number one predictor of if it's going to be successful. Like if you hate your therapist, you probably won't get a lot done. So that goes into just attachment theory and, and what that means. And do you guys know what that is? No. no. Attachment theory comes from this guy. His name is John Bowlby. And he was doing research in orphanages. And he was noticing that like these babies that were getting everything that they needed, like shelter, food, water, they were dying they're getting really, really sick, but there was no reason for it except they weren't being touched. So there's no touch at all, which is crazy. And what he came up was that a relationship is necessary to survive. He did a lot of research and there's a lot of stuff that I won't go into because it might be a little bit boring, but he came up with these three attachment styles, secure, anxious, avoidant. And we get those attachment styles based on the relationships we usually have with our primary caregiver. So if I have a really great loving environment and all my needs are met all the time, I'm going to have a secure attachment. But And that's the majority of people, but also I see it as on a spectrum too. The majority of people do have a secure yes. relationship? Yeah, that's what they say in the research. Yeah. But yeah. also, You're using air quotes. Like, I'm doing air quotes and they see. can't see. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. However, I think really people are on a spectrum with this. Okay. So, and then anxious attachment would be when sometimes their needs are being met, sometimes they're not. And so you don't know whether to trust or not to trust. And then avoidant is when your needs aren't really being met. And so you kind of develop this idea of like, I got to go do everything on my own. Like I got to go um, figure everything out on my own. Okay. I'm going to interject just a second. Cause I do have two adopted children from Haiti and some people may know that some people may not, depending on what they've listened to. And I had not heard it described as attachment theory, mm -hmm. but I know that my kids and I've witnessed it, they have attachment disorder. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And the lack of stimulation mm -hmm. that my son had, I now see how it comes out in certain times, like how mm -hmm. he responds and reacts. And then even my daughter, I'm just, this is just, is this yeah. even the same thing? Yes. Like the yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm just making sure I'm on the same page. Cause I also want to be aware of like now that I'm what their primary caregiver that I'm focused on whatever they're going to need from me. Mm -hmm. But there's already walls built. There's already, mm -hmm. my daughter came here at 10. She's mm -hmm. 12 now. But day one from her arrival was resistance. I can handle this on my own. I don't need you. She would basically give us the Heisman anytime. I mean, it's been two years of breaking it down and we're finally getting there, but there's still testing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really trust you. Mm -hmm. Are you going to really love me? Mm -hmm. What about if I do this? You still yes. going to love me? What if I, okay, 
I'm going to try this out. And so my husband and I just have to remain consistent. And so, yes, at first, when you talked about attachment theory, I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, but yes, I do. Then I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I do know this. But I'm also trying to think of my childhood and how it was with that's, my yeah. that's where it parents. Me. So think like, about wow. this. You've talked about your own like issues with food and disordered eating and all of that. I have that. So think about, as I explain this, kind of where your story pops up. Also, this is going to be helpful because you're probably doing the things you need to do with your children without even knowing that you're doing them just because you're a good caring person. So you can develop a certain attachment style. Good news is it's not static, it's fluid. So going back to just describing this and how it relates to what we were talking about in the beginning is people develop these attachments and they're all based on feeling like loved, like you belong. And so I have developed my own theory that we all are born with these two desires to be ourselves and then to have love and belonging. And throughout our lives, the desire for love and belonging becomes very, 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 very strong. And so we drop parts of ourselves or we pick parts of ourselves or pick things up that aren't really parts of ourselves to get that love and belonging. And so that's when the addiction comes in. I'll use an example from my life to explain this. So I never felt like I like really, really, really fit in to or had like a thing or was special in certain parts of my friend groups, in certain areas in my family. And so I started to do things to get me attention. I attributed that attention to love, right? I always say like any attention is good attention. So going back to what you said, what's the difference between therapy and self-work is a therapist is what we call a secure base, which helps somebody develop a secure attachment style. So somebody's gonna come into my office probably not knowing that they have any of this or any kind of trauma. I'm going to be that person like you're explaining with your daughter. What if I do this? Will you still love me? What if I yell at you? Can I still come back? What if I miss a session? What if I tell you that you're wrong? What if I disagree with you? Um, What if I act out? What if I relapse in what you told me not to do? Are you still going to let me come back in? And the answer is always yes, 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 with safe boundaries. And it helps them learn that like, hey, I don't have to be a certain way. I can show up as I am and like I can find love. So when you say you were doing things to get attention, Mm -hmm. what were those things? So it depends on which part of my life. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the eating (laughs) Eating disorder. disorder. So in college, yeah, it's easy for me to talk about this now. I didn't know that this was happening. No clue, which most people don't. But I started with a diet, counting calories. And again, in my family, all my siblings went and played D1 sports and I just like went to college. And so I felt like I was missing something because I didn't have anything that my parents would really brag that much about. No fault to them. My parents are great. And so I went on this diet, started losing all this weight. I was getting tons of attention, like tons. You look so good. This, this, whatever guys like started talking to me more. And so I attribute that to that of like, okay, now I fit in, now I belong. Belonging is love. I'm good. And then I became a shell of a human. Tap into that a little bit more. What were you feeling at that time? Like what? I mean, first you're on a high. What does it mean to be a shell? Because you're certainly not a shell today. You come in with (laughs) vibrance and you're radiant. Yes. Yeah. Um, So just so that people, because really we're doing this so people don't feel alone. And I feel like with each person that's sharing part of their real story, which you just did, somebody's relating and they're like, Mm -hmm. wait, tell me more. Yeah. I would say people would always describe me as like loud and bubbly and like fun. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Yeah. So that, which I didn't know what the Enneagram was back then. So that's how I always was. So when I started restricting my food, I ended up restricting every single part of my life. 
because I couldn't go to that party because what if I drank alcohol and there's calories in alcohol and then what if I got drunk and then I wanted to eat something and I ate something I shouldn't eat? That crippled me. Or I can't go to that, that restaurant because I can't eat anything there. Then people are going to ask me like, why aren't you eating? And I'm going to have to come up with some excuse. Or I can't go to that thing at night because I have to get up and work out at 6 a.m. and I need my energy. And so I started cutting things out of my life. I remember, so this started my junior year of college, that summer, junior to senior year, I like never left my parents' house when I came home. And I never saw any of my friends from high school, which we were always very close. I remember I did one thing. I went to my best friend from high school's birthday party and then started at her house and they all went out. I think it might've been her 21st birthday. And I went home after her house. Everybody else went out and I went home because I was like, I can't do that. So the thing that got me all this attention all of a sudden, then I was like, what's the point of the attention? Because I'm not letting myself engage with anybody. And then I came back that next year, my senior year, and I didn't do anything. I didn't, I was in a sorority. I like would skip some of our date parties or I would go. I remember one time I also like was really into school, but I like went to a party. It was a swap. So it's one that you would like dress up like and wear a costume. And I like loved doing that. And I like took my note cards to the bar and like studied for my test. You just like withdrew and lost interest in all the things that you love to do. Mm -hmm. My friends did not love that. So that's a part where Mm -hmm. that's just part of your story Mm -hmm. of what you did to get attention, to feel belonging. But then you realize like it's kind of like it goes up, up, up. And it's like this is where I'm getting belonging and love. And then all of a sudden you just it's like we just I think it happened to all of us. And you crash and burn because you realize you have nothing around you. And what is this for? Yeah. So then what do you do? Well, and I love looking back at this because I don't know y'all's experiences, but from my experience, I had no clue that I was struggling. So like not a clue. I thought I was like on top of the world. Like this actually makes you want to cry. But my senior year, I thought that I was killing it. Like I'd gotten into all these graduate programs. I was like going to go do all these things. And looking back, like another thing I did that I have so much grief over is I skipped my last date party ever to come back to Nashville and run the half marathon. I can run that marathon whenever I want. I can never go back and have my last party with my best friends. I did not know that. I, I still was like, yeah, I'd rather go run this marathon. This is my lifestyle. I'm healthy. I don't like to drink. Mm-hmm. Almost like this grandiose sense of self. Mm-hmm. The, the healthy pre- eating yes. high That horse. was yes. so us. Yeah. Yes. yes. Coming up for yeah. Oh my gosh. All and I young. probably was. more judgy. I was a brat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like a probably bee? because. Yeah. Yeah. Because Me I would too. judge what people are eating. You're going to eat that. And I'm like, in my head, I wish I could eat that. Like, I wish I could eat that. But I have eating disorders. We talk a lot about how you have so much control. I had no control. None. Right. Well, it was like, not like I could eat that. Like, wow, look at me. I have so much willpower for not eating that. Yeah. But I don't really think I did have willpower because if I had willpower, I would eat a donut. But that's what people would say to me. I'm like, I wish I could be like Catherine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't want to be like me. Yeah. I know because they don't really know the struggle. That's yeah. why it's important. And we'll reiterate it now since it's kind of coming up. That's why it's important. You never know what's going on inside someone's body. Yeah. You might think it's all they've got it all figured out and their life is together. And then you can reinforce their behavior by complimenting something about their body. And then that keeps them on that hamster mm-hmm. wheel. And really, you have no idea you contributed to the problem yeah. just by giving yeah. a compliment. We've been trying to just get it into people and even myself over and over to stop complimenting on people's yeah. bodies. There's so many other things that we could probably compliment that like do that's not necessary. So can I tell a story yeah. real quick? So this is why I started to look at before I really got into being like an eating disorder therapist, this is like, I have shame about this now, but again, I'm trying to 
not have that. I went to grad school. I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville and thinking I was going to be eating disorder therapist. And guess what I wanted to specialize in? I wanted to work with specifically binge eating disorder and help them lose weight, which is not how you do. That's not. Well, okay. I could understand not understanding. Not understanding. Yes. Now yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. Maybe explain why though that That wouldn't be. Yeah, that may not. Go hand in hand. Yeah. Because okay. I know more of that because I've been doing, I've been working alongside people like yeah. you said where y'all understand why that would be bad, but someone else might not get why that's right. probably not like the best thing. So it's not about the weight. And so with binge eating disorder, there's something else going on. And if I help them lose weight, their issues aren't going away. Like the reason that they're binging, which would be the reason why any of us do a behavior that we would classify as an addiction. It's not about the alcohol. It's not about the food. It's not about any of that. It's about what's underneath of it. And so, yeah, it might be a side effect that if these people do the work and I help them through whatever it is that they're trying to work through, they might lose weight, but that's not the goal. Because if I just take the weight away, everything else is still there. And most people that are in it don't see it as a underlying problem. Like they see it as either a binge problem. I can't stop when I eat. Or they see it as a weight problem. I'm overweight because I eat. Not going any deeper yeah. into why. Do you think that there's anything to the the binging and it being like in the brain? We've touched on brain over binge. But there's there's obviously with what you're saying with the addiction at all coming back to attachment and love, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like all goes back to some of that mm-hmm. in a way. But for me, I mean, I know that I had issues with my dad leaving when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that I also was introduced to dieting at an extremely young age. And I know when I started dieting and then that led to restriction and binging. But I didn't really realize I was binging at the time. Because right. I didn't know really, I mean, it's in high school. But then I knew I would overeat. So then I would purge. But it wasn't all of the time, but I knew that it was wrong. Even so that I went to my mom and said, I need help. I'm throwing up and I don't know where this came from or why, but I, I need help with this. So then she got me into therapy and then that led to therapy all through high school and college. But it was always just focused on my dad having left. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever resonated with me. And then I quit throwing up for years but what I realized in there is I was still binging the whole time. But again, I knew that it was not right because I was like, I just went to literally like four different fast food restaurants in like one stop. Like that's not normal. Mm-hmm. So, or if I was on a road trip somewhere, I would stop at like multiple gas stations and like just eat the entire two hours if the, that was my drive from Austin to College Station, mm-hmm. which is where I went to Texas A&M. So I remember a lot of those road trips was I ate the entire time whether it was a gas station, Sonic, like I had different stops and I would just go through and be like, okay. And then the next day I would just do slim fast or something, but it never, I was still in therapy at that point, but it never was getting anywhere other than somehow I just stopped the throwing up and it was gone, but I kept the binging. And then when I read brain over binge, I've been telling Lisa, like it just made sense to me. Mm -hmm. She talks about rewiring your brain and that you just go to a binge and you have to start denying the binges because I started restricting at such a young age. It trained my brain that I it didn't know when I was going to get food again. So it kept forcing me to overeat and then I would binge. And so I started implementing that over, over a year ago and that worked for me. And that was the first thing where it really made sense. Now I'm sure there's underlying issues with yeah. what's going on, but I do want to talk to you about how that worked for me. But about five years ago when my mom died, even though I had not purged, 
in 12 years, I had binged but not purged. The day after my mom died, I ate dinner and then I had to go throw it up. Mm. And I literally, and it was not an easy thing. It was my sister's birthday the day after my mom died and her in-laws decided to get a food truck. And we had, I mean, otherwise, I mean, there's food at the house everywhere, but we just were not eating. But then it was like my sister's birthday. So I felt like I had to eat from the food truck and I had to eat the cake. So I ate it. And then something about me, literally, and there were so many people at my sister's house. I went over to a neighbor's guest house and I threw up in their bathroom. Mm. <laughs> like it wasn't easy for me to like make this happen. Yeah, but somehow I, f- I was desperate to get that food out of my body. And I hadn't even overeaten. Yeah. But, and that started it again, just like that. It was back. And I probably, it was a daily thing. Then it was like every other day. Then it was like, and Doesn't now. It sound now that, you know, you brought up that it's eating disorders can be addictions. It sounds like an alcoholic returning to alcohol. Yes. Where all of a sudden you need that whatever and you go and find it and then, okay, I'll just do it this one time. And then you slowly kind of trickle back into the same thing. Okay. But I don't even know that I was like, I felt like it was an out-of-body experience when I was doing it. I don't think I had the rational rational to be like, okay, it's just going to be this one time. I was just like, I did it. And then I was like, what was that? And I was so freaked out by it that just like I went to my mom in high school, I went to my husband almost immediately. And I'm like, here's the deal. You've been married to me and I haven't thrown up our entire marriage. So you don't know this side of me, but now I'm terrified and it's here. And I feel like an alcoholic that has just lost their chip. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I said to him. And he was like, okay, well, we can do this. Like whatever you need. And I would say there was a lot of times where after, I mean, he would come home and he'd be like, how was your day? And I would be like, even a year after my mom died or two years, Mm -hmm. there would still be discussions. How was your day? I'd say my day was fine, except for I threw up. You know, and I would be able, I'm thankful for a relationship where I could be honest with him about that, but I still was so perplexed why it was happening. And now I've been over a year without anything, binges or purges. Mm -hmm. So I feel that, but I have to share with you a revelation I had with Lisa, but I don't even know if it makes sense. And since you're a therapist, I'm going to take advantage. (laughs) Do I need to pay you for the hour? I I told Lisa, I said, it just didn't, I went to therapy. Obviously I did EMDR after my mom died because it's very traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. She did not die. It was not easy. She had cancer. I saw a lot that I I shouldn't see Mm -hmm. and laid with her in her final breath. Me and my sister both. And then, I don't know if this is healthy or not, but we probably laid with her for about an hour after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the corner people were like, uh, we're here. Time to load her up. And we're like, we're not done yet. So, you know, it, whatever that looks like for you, mm-hmm. it, that's what we needed. But we definitely, my sister and I both saw a lot and it was traumatic. And then, you know, here I am the next day throwing up the food and I'm not knowing why. And I'm telling this to my therapist and she's like, well, that's trauma. And you, the last trauma you had in your life was when your dad left. And that was when your younger eating disorder kind of mm-hmm. started. I'm like, well, not exactly. But I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that like that would just make me do it. But then I had this thought because I think something Lisa talked about or somebody talked about that like I really felt because I was grieving. And this also could be related to attention since you said that. And this is just me having to get completely honest and almost like embarrassed that like, what? Because it's not like it was a very conscious thought out decision. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I need attention. So this is what I'm going to do. This is almost like five years later, just having to look back and be like, oh, yuck. Was that really what this was? Because what makes sense to me now is that 
I felt like I was grieving. And if you're grieving, you're supposed to lose weight. If you're grieving, you're not supposed to have food because you're sad and sad people don't eat and sad people get skinny. And if I get skinny, I get attention, which is exactly what happened. I mean, there was not a single person in my life that did not comment on my body like about a month after my mom died because I did get very thin and I would weigh myself every single day. Mm -hmm. I would drink juice in the morning, purge, whatever. I would do yoga twice a day. Also, I was trying to keep busy to not think about my mom. I would do wine and Xanax for bed. So it would knock me out and I wouldn't think about food. And I would, but nobody knew this was happening to me, but I would still come to work the next day. And someone from would be visiting from, you know, another city that hadn't seen me in a while and be like, Oh my gosh, Amy, you look so good. And then I'd be like, thank you. And then, but I'd be like, yes, I'm grieving. (laughs) I'm doing a good job grieving. I'm doing a good job grieving because I lost my mom and I need you to recognize that I'm sad. My skinny represents my sadness and that gives me attention. Yeah. It sounds very twisted and messed Not up to really. say out I loud. I, I wonder- feel that makes more sense to me than when the therapist told me she thought like a trauma capsule opened in my head. And because that's how I dealt with my dad leaving, that's immediately the route my my, my brain was going to go to deal with losing my mom. And I just don't know that that makes sense to me. Thank you for sharing that. I think your therapist could be right. Part of it could be, this is the thing with therapy and like men, there's no just like one way. So that's why, I mean, eating disorders and addiction in general is hard because I can't just say it's every time because of this. A lot of times it's because of this. There could have been the trauma part, but I think what you're talking about is probably attached to your trauma of not getting the attention and the love and the belonging from your dad. And then now this is like your mom, like your secure base, right? Mm-hmm. Your person. Mm-hmm. And then she's gone. And then like, who's my person and who's going to recognize or who's going to know what I need or who's going to, all of that comes up of like, you lost your secure base. So what do I do? You're sad, right? Part of it is I hear you saying like, I want people to see my sadness I think part of it also is like, I don't want to feel sad either. And so what can I do to shove down all of these feelings? Because it feels good when I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. It's as twisted as it is. Like it feels good to perch. It feels good to go on a run for two hours. It feels for a period of time. Good to even just binge. It yeah, feels good to binge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For a period until it doesn't. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until it doesn't. And at yeah. the beginning, yes, it was like this high in this ride and until Mm -hmm. it got messy and it was just exhausting and it was like I can't keep up or if I would try to throw up and it didn't work and I was like oh my gosh I just ate all that food like and it's not coming up like it was just tell me about like the embarrassment of like this is so messed up I feel embarrassed that this is what I did I think because I could be wrong on this but if we're for the sake of our conversation of viewing uh, eating disorder as an addiction and alcohol's addiction I feel like for lack of a better word, being addicted to cocaine or alcohol is a little more sexy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the right word. Just for the sake of this, I'm just going to say binging a bunch of food mm-hmm. and then throwing it up for whatever the reason is, is disgusting. To me, I'm never, I don't look at, and it could just be me thinking that about myself. I'm not saying that about anybody else. I'm saying it literally about myself. I'm sure there's shame associated with anything that you're addicted to, but I feel like, oh, gosh, if I was addicted to cocaine, nobody would be like, oh, you're disgusting. They'd be like, oh, wow, she, that's crazy. She needs to get some help. Yeah. But I'm like, if they knew what I was addicted to and that I was doing this, they'd be like, she's so disgusting. So that's my own thought process is it's not Are as... you putting it out here right now on this? 
is breaking down that factor of shame. And I think like even on Instagram, like anxiety became so popular to talk about, but like depression was in the cloud of like this shit thing you can't talk about. And I recently talked about something that I never said either, which was laxative abuse and flooded with messages, not comments on my private, on my public Instagram page, private messages of me too. So there is something super secretive still about the purging, whether it is up or down, that people are still not acknowledging. But you right here saying it is showing that there is no disgust to it. There is no shame, especially you as Amy Brown. Right, because I wouldn't want anybody else sharing. I would say that same thing to them. But we're breaking it down. You just broke it down for so so many people. I'm becoming more vocal about my story. I think that on the radio years ago, it maybe come up that I had dealt with an eating disorder in high school and college. It was kind of like I could relate on that level. Never would talk about the issues with food or binging or obsession, food obsession mm-hmm. for all these years. That just doesn't come up organically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then after the stuff with my mom, oh my gosh, I kept, I mean, I told my husband about it, but I was very private about it. Like very until now recently, I feel like I'm in a better place and I don't want people to feel alone and I need to start sharing that part of my story. So a lot of things I haven't said out loud yet, like what I just shared, I haven't fully said out loud in the whole, in its entirety. And so, and as I don't even, I'm still probably not all giving it all. I feel good. I mean, I feel like I've been like, there's a couple of times where I'm like, okay, smiling inside because it does feel good. There's a little bit of a high from it, but also I was at a low where I was taken back to it and I was very sad for myself and I was about to cry, but trying to keep it together for the sake of the being one of the hosts here, (laughs) but in crying is okay. I have no issue crying on air, done that plenty of times. So I'm I'm sad for that, that part of me. I want to tell you a story. Okay. One, I have to say this because this is huge. This is a side note. But when people talk about this stuff, I mean, what you were saying, it is huge because, yeah, people will talk about anorexia and restricting Uh and my exercise addiction. They won't talk about the other stuff. And it's not any better at all. And what you're talking about is shame. I feel ashamed for what I did. And what shame feeds off of is your silence and secrets. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about it more, the shame kind of gets, you starve the shame. So the shame dies. That's so true. And so that's a big deal because I'm sure there's 1 million bajillion trillion people that are going to hear that and be like, oh my gosh, I felt that way too. Is it okay for me to talk about this? I think I'm going to try it. The other part is, this is the story I was going to tell 15 minutes ago, but I'm glad I'm telling it mm-hmm. now because there's this doctor, his name is Dr. Gabor Mate, and he does a lot of research and stuff around addiction. He was working with heroin addicts and he was trying to figure out, he was working in a center where harm reduction. So it's like, we're not going to, you're not going to get sober. We're going to teach you how to responsibly use. Mm -hmm. But he was going around and interviewing these men and women of like, why are you, why do you use heroin? We know that's bad. We know that can kill you. And he went to this one guy and he described him the way I remember him describing him is as this like almost like he would look like a big bouncer at like a club with like bald head, big guy, tattoos, like tough. And he said, can you tell me what heroin does for you? Like, why do you use it? And he said, I don't really know how to describe it, but have you ever been sick? And your mom puts you on her lap and she wraps you up in a blanket and she starts feeding you chicken noodle soup. 
He was like, that's what heroin feels like. So this guy concluded, oh, love. Like that's what heroin feels like, love. It feels like a warm hug. Mm -hmm. And so I tell that story because like there is so much shame and like, why do I do these things that are so bad? And I'm like, what's wrong with me is what I hear all the time. Like, Catherine, what is wrong with me? And I'm like, nothing is wrong with you. There's actually something right with you. Like, Amy, there is something right with you. The fact that you're like, I, there's something wrong with me. I want to feel better. I need to go do this thing that I know that used to help me feel better. That means that there's something right with you that you are trying to find. Like, we all need attention. We all need love. We all need belonging. We are born attached to our mothers. Like, we need attachment. We are born that way. And so I just say that because I think that a lot of people think to themselves, like, what is wrong with me? Like, why can't I stop? It's like, because you're a healthy human that wants to get better. And thank God that you did that rather than like just being like, take me away life. Like, yeah, and you turn to your husband too, which is yeah. like telling, I think, I mean, I'm not the yeah. best, but no. like, that's your secure attachment now. Can you say yeah. that? Can you yeah. have a secure With, and it can be any, it can be anybody. Yeah. That's your secure attachment. So it's like, help me. Well, thank you for letting me talk through that. Yeah. That I session. I feel like we just made a lot of clarity that it, we needed. Yeah. I didn't know where, where we would, go with that for sure. But I think that this is, how do you feel, Lisa? Do you have anything you want to add from your I think that the audience will feel like I did where we might not have your exact story or maybe you do. There's plenty of people who have have purged for that exact reason. But I feel like I've made headway in my understanding of myself (laughs) far beyond my even years in therapy just Mm -hmm. by understanding the importance of secure attachment and personally not having that growing up either, Mm -hmm. despite what it looked like. Um, and how we go about seeking attention because we're mm. scared. Not We don't feel safe. And there's a million ways to do that. But for a large majority of us, with the addition of the emphasis on thin equals loved equals health equals applause, mm-hmm. it's an easy one kind of right next to it. So what do you do with your clients? Mm-hmm. What is something we can, can leave as like, is there like an act? activity or uh, like affirmations or something you encourage them to do that those are that are listening that might be some of the stuff we've talked about today is resonating with them like is there like some stuff they can like a piece of homework or something my gut says if this is really resonating with somebody I want them to reach out and go to therapy that could be great advice that might be (laughs) it because some people see that there's shame in therapy and Mm -hmm. we should make sure that we're here to say that there's not there is nothing wrong with that at all whatsoever. And something that you say on your Instagram all the time that I am not a therapist, but I've been in therapy my whole (laughs) life is there doesn't have have to be something something wrong with you you to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even if you don't identify with the purging or even an eating disorder and you're just listening to this, I mean, I have found that my most profoundly huge steps forward in Mm -hmm. therapy have been on days where I didn't come discussing a trauma Mm -hmm. or anything relevant to my life. I think it's just a tool to better get to know your total yeah. being. And that is profoundly huge in how it will affect yeah. everything in your life. What about a piece of homework for people um, that you had said earlier is, you know, which so second nature for us to comment on somebody's body. What are some yeah. things that people can maybe for the next week work on? I believe in like human connection. I think mm-hmm. the more we talk to people and out loud, the more connected we feel like being in an Uber even. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to just be on your phone the whole time, but even interacting with an Uber driver or a taxi driver. I live in the city. What are ways that people can compliment people this week 
that are non-appearance based? Yeah. How can we push them to talk to people and say things that they, what are some, some things we can say to start conversation with strangers or loved ones? You know what I, I want to come back. This actually comes from your last week's episode. Um, what did Kelsey say about if you think it and it's nice, say it? Oh, if it's mm-hmm. kind, say if it's it. kind, say it. So just to clarify, since this is a completely, this is a different series, but, and it's airing in April, but I do have, I had an interview back in March with Kelsey Ballerini on Mm -hmm. the four things podcast. So you're referencing something that's who said it just so that we were just talking about empowering women. And Kelsey was just saying, you know, one thing I've learned is if it's kind, say it, like Mm -hmm. who cares if you know the person or if you don't know them, if it's kind, if you think it, if you think it and it's kind, say Say it. it. That's exactly what she said. So I would say that with a caveat, if it's about the shape of their body. So, um, because again, you never know if that is a point of contention for somebody. But I, one of the things that I've worked on, because I actually am like a introverted extrovert, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I think um, I am too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So also. yeah, okay. We all are. But like, I sometimes don't, I like go into a place and I'll like think all of these things about, I won't ever say anything because I'll just kind of keep to myself and wait for somebody to approach me. But I think something that we can work on is like when we see somebody and if we're just happy to see somebody say, it's good to see you. Like I've missed you means a lot to me. Or rather than being like, oh my God, girl, you look so good. You look so happy. I think that a lot of the time when we do compliment somebody's weight or body change, it's because we've become so that's, this is an okay thing to say to somebody that you might not even know. Mm-hmm. And so you might actually be thinking this person looks happy. Yeah. But it's a weird thing to say, hey, girl, you look happy. So let me say, did you lose weight? Like, I think that yeah. we actually are seeing, Amy, again, going back to the radiance in people. But it might feel strange to say you look radiant because it's not a, a normal mm-hmm. exchange. Like, you look good, right? Yeah. Like, so I think diving into your psyche yeah. of, okay, maybe you think this person looks good. That's the first thing. Why do they look good? What are they, they giving off? They're fitting the standards of what yeah. society tells us looks good. Yeah. Because if society didn't say that, like, what would we think? Like, I always say we are the decider of our own opinions. So we get to actually decide that, like, which a lot of people would be like, yeah, duh. But then I'm like, well, do you think that because the person next to you thinks that? Or do you think that because you really think that about yourself mm-hmm. or about other people? And I use the example of, I pulled out a peanut butter sandwich and started eating it. And you were like, ew, peanut butter. But I'd be like, I don't like it anymore either. <laughs> it's the same thing as like, if somebody's like, I don't like your shirt. Like, yeah. well, I, you're allowed to still like it. If somebody thinks that you look whatever, you can still think you look good. If society says that you are not. Right. What- we need to stop questioning ourselves yeah. based off of others' opinions, yeah. whether it's as profound as your body or insignificant as your shirt. Right. Or peanut butter sandwich. Or peanut butter. Catherine, thank you for coming to talk so with us. If you think it and it's kind, <laughs> say it, which yeah. comes from both Catherine Doesn't and... Doesn't come from me. I can't take credit. Yeah, Kelsey, the, yeah. Kelsey it said it, but I don't that's know if the, she said it. She got it from somewhere. Yeah. Or, I always say make it easy to be kind to yourself. So going along with that is like make it easy to be kind to other people too. Like mm-hmm. all you have to do is go up to somebody and say, hi, how are you? And you can start a conversation that could make somebody's day. Exchanging a smile every now and yeah. then. Yeah. People may not remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. Amen. Good one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then my website is threechordstherapy.com too. Perfect. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for yeah. taking time to talk thank with you. us. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. 
The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.